This podcast is about all things related to a disparate community of Americans without a name. We are the AM, A-M-M. A for Arab, M for Muslim, and another M for Middle Eastern. By heritage and American by choice or circumstance. But more importantly, we are separated and alienated from each other. It's time to get in front of the racist PR, clean out the cobwebs, and get to the business of defining ourselves. We are here to elevate and voices. You ready to hear some tough truths? I am Banaf Shemadeinejad. This is Ramesh Deem. I'm Roy Casagranda, and this is The Defining Moment. Uh, hi, my name is Roy Casagranda, and this is I Am The Defining Moment. I'm here with Ramesh Nadim. Hi, this is Ramesh Adim. How's everyone doing? So, what in the world is going on with Egypt? Is Egypt Asian or African? Is it Middle Eastern? Is it Muslim or not? What is what do they what does Egypt today have to do with the pyramids and all of that? What's going on with Egypt? Okay, that's that's an awesome question. I feel like since this is the defining moment, let's do some definitions. <laughs> So this question was actually posted on my Facebook page. I want to say it was like six weeks ago, but I've lost complete track of time. So it's probably six days ago or six months ago. But in any case, it was posted on my Facebook question. It was posed as, is Egypt African or Asian? And um, a person really quickly, a white person really quickly said, it's, in the, it's on the continent of Africa, but it's culturally Asian. What the hell does that mean, culturally Asian? Yeah, well, so that that's exactly why we need to have this conversation. <laughs> to, to do this, though, we have to unpack a lot of stuff. So, right, we, like, for example, we probably need to unpack what does it mean to even be Asian. Um, we need to unpack what does it mean to be African. But we also need to probably talk about heuristics and categories and the role that categories play in our day-to-day lives. Because we use heuristics, which are basically information shortcuts, to figure out what what a thing means. And, to, and, and categories are a great heuristic device because you can just go, oh, X is that, or this thing is part of the, this larger category that I'm gonna call category X. And then you don't have to actually spend the time to develop expertise, for example, on that subject, whatever the subject is. And so that's really obviously what's at stake here. The person looking at the category African and then the category Asian has a whole set of attributes that they've assigned to these two categories. And of course, physically, Egypt is fun because it owns the Sinai, which is in Asia officially, but the, m- most of the state, population-wise and land-wise, is on the continent of Africa. And then you could ask yourself the question, is the line, basically it's the Suez Canal, that divides Africa from Asia arbitrarily drawn? Like, could it not have been drawn along the border between Egypt and Palestine? And, and so, you know, right, you start to automatically get into these really interesting category questions 
um, you know, is Russia Asian or European? Is is Turkey European or Asian? Is Egypt African or Asian? Um, and so, let, let's start with the the heuristic thing because I think I think you kind of have to start there. If for no other reason, just so that we know why we do this. So everything does heuristics that I know of. And by everything, I mean everything that's living um, and not a plant. So I'm including fungi and molds. Okay, so what? What? how are molds using heuristics? By heuristics, we mean these sort of like rules of thumbs that we walk around with, just these general broad... Uh, um, ways and methods that we have of making sense of the world that may not be entirely accurate when we uh, dig down into the nuances of the subject. That we're exactly. The, so actually, let's do an example of heuristics. Because uh, I, sometimes I find examples are better than definitions, right? Okay, so you're driving down the road and you're experiencing bad traffic. Your mind immediately goes, oh, I wonder what's going on. Is it construction? Is it a car accident? Is it rush hour? right? We have three quick sources our brain goes to for probable cause for the traffic. Those are categories. And they're, they're so simplistic that we don't need to know any details to understand the situation. And then, you know, as you're, as you're traveling along the slow traffic, you see three cars on the side of the road with a pickup, with a tow truck. And so your mind immediately goes, oh, accident. It may not be true, right? It may, there may not have been an accident. It could be just uh, one of the cars had a flat tire and they pulled over and the other two cars came to assist and a tow truck pulled up. We don't know at that moment, but that's what our brain immediately does because we're trying to assign the situation that we're in a, a simple category. And that way we don't have to really investigate. When you pull up closer to the, the three cars in the tow truck, you might see that, oh yeah, look, there's a little bit of damage on one of the car's fenders. It was probably a fender bender. You know, there's no ambulance, nobody's laying on the side of the road, so you can, you, we have a new category, fender bender, instead of auto fatality. You know what I mean? Like, there, it, we, can, we can assign it a category that's manageable, and it's easy, and you don't need to know any more details. You can get to work late, say there was a, there was a fender bender on the freeway, Everybody was stopping to rubberneck. That's another category, rubbernecking. Because um, you don't really know if it was rubbernecking that caused the traffic to slow down. It could have been that it just took so long to clear the accident that that caused this ripple wave that slowed. And nobody was actually fend uh, nobody was actually rubbernecking. So, in other words, we're assigning these situational categories to the situation we're in that may not be accurate, but it doesn't matter. They're good enough, and that's all right. We when need, you get, that's all we need. you just—it's just enough information so you can make sense of the situation you're in, and you walk away. You know, for example, it might be that one of the person, one of the pe the person in front was texting. They needed to hit the brakes all of a sudden because they got too close to the car in front of them, and then three cars pile up. Or, or it could it could have been that uh, a person high as a kite walked across the road, and the person wasn't texting, it wasn't their fault, they had to stop because there was this crazy person in front of a cemetery that was walking towards the cemetery, and we don't know why, clearly high, on the freeway. This is an oddly specific example. Is this out of personal experience or not? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh my god, I, got, I did not cause a fender bender in that particular situation. But just talk about my hat, my palms are sweating because... I came so close to killing that woman. 
I was probably doing 65, 70 miles an hour, and I'm hitting the brakes as hard as I can without losing control of my car and looking in my mirrors to see if I can pull over a lane, right, without slamming into other cars. And I missed her, and there were three other cars that should have should have taken her out. All four of us missed her. And it was right there next to the cemetery, and I was like, wow. That was perfect. <laughs> so heuristics when we deal with them when it comes to our sort of day-to-day environments the stories that we tell other people all of this stuff they seem to function pretty well and get us along pretty well but when it comes to these to, to individuals and to people sometimes these heuristics fail us a little more uh often absolutely so i want to do mold real quick all right, all right. so mold if, if you if you look at what mold do because so mold, right? We don't we don't think of mold as an animal because because it's not it's not in the animal category, but it actually has a behavior. It has a, a, a very a very powerful behavioral pattern. So when it when there is not food, it actually creates a structure, and that structure looks like it's designed by an intelligent being, that's designed to then go acquire the food, and we think that the way mold does this is it's it's got a series of genetically encoded heuristics that tell the entire mold structure, right? Because it's not like there's an individual mold directing the structure's construction. And, and, and in the structure, each mold takes a different role. So it's, it's the same living being. It's a colony, right? A colony of living beings that takes a different role so that it can acquire the food as a group. Oh, that's so interesting, yeah. So without a centralized brain, without any of that, still this seemingly apparently intelligent behavior is taking place. Exactly. And then bees do this. So, you know, the bee looks at the dance that another bee is doing and goes, okay, I know where the, the nectar is. I'm going to head over to those flowers because they've got these heuristic devices they've created. Dogs do this. Everything does this. It is a way to manage information. By the way, what we call the scientific method when you think about it, it has its its roots in superstition. So uh, let's say you have a, a dove you want to you want to play a trick on. So it, it's in a cage. It's your pet dove. Every time it pulls its wings up, if you ran over and fed it, the dove would begin to associate lifting its wings with getting fed. In other words, the dove is superstitious by its very nature. But when you think about it, that's actually a really scientific thing because at that point then, the dove could raise its wings and then if you ran over and gave it food, it would go, yep, it works every time. And eventually, the dove would just start to do that as, a, as, its, as its reaction. Um, and, you know, that's how we train dogs. That's, that's how we acculturate as babies. This is something very necessary having said that it also can really get messy when things are complicated so when we do when we do politics politicians communicate with us through heuristic devices um for example if a politician has on a billboard uh pro-choice or pro pro-life that communicates a whole bunch of information to you that you don't you probably don't need any more information to know something about that politician you know for example if they said pro-life you probably go oh probably a conservative republican and now you know how to vote the problem is that person didn't say they were a conservative republican they might actually be a, 
a liberal Democrat. It's just on one particular issue, they happen to agree with conservative Republicans. And so in a, in a way, this can be really dangerous, right? Because we're, we're making too many assumptions at that point. When it comes to Egypt, that's probably where we are. We're probably in the land of, of, of dangerous when we try to fit them into these categories. So from my like sort of children's media and books and TV shows and all sorts of stories, I have a vague exoticized idea of what Africa is and what Africa means in my head. I also have a similar kind of vague idea for what Asia is and what Asianness means in my head. When it comes to Egypt, something weird is going on, and I don't have these categories that function for me anymore. Right. Yeah. So, and it, and it's and it is because Egypt is at the crossroads of Asia, Africa, and Europe. So technically, it does. It's not adjacent to Europe. Just so we're clear, I'm not saying that it touches Europe, but but culturally, linguistically, historically, it is completely tied to Europe. As if it as if it did touch Europe. So in all honesty, what Egypt is, is it's the center point between three continents. Um, before we go on, though, I want to I want to actually talk about the category of continents, because there there's a real definition for a continent. Right. It's a large landmass, a, a super big landmass. So when you look at a map of planet Earth, you will see that there are. There are, in fact, five really big land masses. Um, having said that, I was raised to believe there were seven continents. So, when I look at a map, I have to reconcile this really bizarre notion that there are there are clearly five large masses, land masses, but somehow there's seven continents, and and of course that takes sort of a categorical leap. I have to immediately cancel out the rule that was that was I was taught that made a continent. So obviously North America and South America are each continents. Africa is very clearly a continent. Antarctica is very clearly a continent. Europe and Asia <laughs> that is bizarro land. Europe is a continent like Pluto is a planet. I don't even think that's true. I think it's I think it's more like Europe is a continent like Halley's Comet is a, pl is a planet. <laughs> Europe is not a continent in any way, shape, or form. What it is, is a peninsula jutting off of Asia. Asia is very clearly a giant landmass. And you can tell by where the border is drawn between Europe and Asia that some drunk dude with a crayon just, just went to town. I've always thought, and it's always been my consideration, that South Asia is more of a continent than Europe is. I, I totally think that's true. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, there's a serious barrier between absolutely. South Asia and the rest of Asia. <laughs> Whereas there is absolutely no barrier whatsoever between Europe and Asia. I shouldn't say whatsoever because the Caucasus Mountains is the definition for the, the border between uh, right Georgia, uh, Azerbaijan, and Russia. And the Caucasus Mountains are a real boundary for sure. But then that's it, because right, the next boundary is the Ural Mountains. And again, that's a category Ural Mountains is a categorical error. They're they're nothing but more than glorified hills. They're definitely not mountains. And then the Ural River for a while and the Caspian Sea for a while. Uh, a friend of mine has up on his wall a map that was created 
I, th I think it's a hundred year old map. It might be a little bit older. It might be like a 120, 130 year old map of the world. And it has the boundary between Europe and Asia as basically the, the boundary between Pakistan and Iran and then Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so, so central, what we now say is central Asia was in Europe and then Iran, Turkey and Saudi Arabia are in Europe on that map. Oh, that's interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and the reason I love that map so much is it just shows how arbitrary the boundary between Europe and Asia really is. There, there, you know, it could, it, it would make way more sense for it to be the Indus River and the Himalayas than it makes for it to be the Ural River and the Ural Mountains. So, from a from a geo, a geographical standpoint, there's no such thing as as Europe as a continent, but. It makes sense that Asia, being as extremely diverse as it is, should be broken up into subcontinents. So there should be a, a South, South Asia subcontinent. There should be a European subcontinent. You, you should probably make an argument for a Southeast Asian subcontinent, an East Asian subcontinent, and a Southwest Asian subcontinent, and then a Central Asian subcontinent, because that way you could put Asia into manageable categories. Because otherwise... Asia becomes truly unmanageable. What is it about Jordanians and Japanese that they have in common? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> and so why would you put them into the same category together other than uh, this is a really funny thing to do? And then, of course, there's the other thing that I, that I haven't gotten to yet, which is Australia. Australia is clearly just a big island. It's, it's not a continent. If it is a continent, why isn't Greenland a continent? Now, Australia is significantly larger than, than, than Greenland, um, but Greenland's still a massive island, right? Like, Australia should be an island just like Greenland is. And so then, the, then comes the question, why did we have these continental categories? So the guy who came up with this, um, there, were, there were actually two people who were really largely responsible for it. There was a... Ionian Greek who is living in what is today Western Turkey uh, named Anaximander and then another Ionian uh, another Greek who was living in uh, an, a city that's sort of on the boundary between Ionia and Caria and it was Miletos uh, his name was Hecateus and these two men in their attempt to understand geography had divided the world up into Asia, Europe, and Africa. And the reason they had done this was because it, you have to look at it through the lens of a Mediterranean mind. So the way they saw it was the Bosporus and the Dardanelles was a real boundary. The Black Sea was a boundary. And then the Mediterranean was a boundary. So they sort of had these, if you, if you think of the Mediterranean, if you run a line from Gibraltar to, um, Palestine, right? So you run a line uh, splitting the Mediterranean into a north and a south and then take a line from that and run it through the Black Sea, there was kind of three pieces. The problem is, is once we learn more about the world, it no longer made sense because Asia is too big for it to fit in that category. So I think the reason it's persisted is actually a race question as opposed to a geographical question. Because in the beginning, I don't think it was intended to be a race issue, although it was a way Greeks were sort of differentiating themselves from non-Greeks, right? 
the, by claiming the European status, they were saying we're different from these Africans and Asians. But well, with the Greek conception of race, we always saw this sort of like inward versus out group, which is something that we exactly. commonly see universally, right? Every group thinks that they themselves are the best in the world, the center of the universe, and everyone else is this barbarian figure that speaks these strange tongues and languages. Race as we see it today is something a little different, yeah. It's yeah. very different. And then when they spoke, they, they sounded like bar, 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 bar. bar. <laughs> or tar, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. For for the Greeks, everybody was inferior. It wasn't it wasn't an issue of color of skin. It wasn't an issue of uh, we're in a larger group versus this other group of people in a in a larger group. It was it really was everybody else is just inferior. For the record, Hecateus got humbled in Egypt. He he went to Egypt. And of course, his mind was absolutely blown. He he couldn't he couldn't comprehend anything he was looking at, and uh, he ended up in Karnak, which is in Luxor, and he's in a temple, and he gets to talking to a priest, and he's trying to make himself feel better because he's so crushed by the by the monuments he's looking at that he starts talking about the fact that he's a descendant from, from gods. He starts talking about, you know, like 12 generations back, the god Apollo was my great, 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 whatever grandfather. And the Egyptian goes, wait, you, you think you have a god in your ancestry that recently? And Hecateus is like, yeah, that's what my family tree says. And so the Egyptian takes him over to a, um, a stand with like 285 statues on it. And Hecateus looks at the stand and he goes, what's this? And the priest says, every generation, a new statue is added. So this, is, this represents 285 generations. Oh my goodness. And, and Hecateus is looking at it going, what is this? He goes, well, this is, this is what our, how far Egypt goes back. This is how far back our civilization goes. And Hecateus goes, I can't comprehend what you're telling me. My, my civilization, we trace our line back about 12 generations. And you're telling me yours goes back 285. <laughs> and the priest goes, yeah, not only, I, that's not really why I came here to show you that. I really came here to show you this because I want to point out that there's not a single God anywhere in that 285 generations. And so Hecateus came back from his expedition with serious doubt about his family tree. The reason why that all matters is because it's a way for me to get back to Egypt. So, okay. With Roy, I want to issue the disclaimer, all roads lead to Egypt. All roads. All of them do. Um, so, <clears throat> is Egypt African or Asian? The first problem with the question is that Asian is such a broad thing that I don't know that the term even has any meaning. African, when you... You're right. When when we when we pull up African, there is a thought that probably pops into ninety percent of the planet's mind immediately, which is a black person, and there's a very probably oversimplified expectation of what that black culture looks like. Um, the person you know might be holding a spear or they've got a shield, right? It, the imagery that we tend to invoke tends to be loaded with racist paradigms that assume some sort of primitiveness. And, you know, Africa is, is that in the same way that Europe is that. Like, if I say Europe and the thing that pops into your head is a Viking on a long ship 
sailing off to England to go plunder, rape, pillage, and steal, that, then it's literally just as accurate because it is, a, it is obviously a part of our, of our heritage, but it doesn't define what we are today by any means. Um, so in the case of Africa and Asia, they're both really loaded categories. If you break Egypt down, so if we do it culturally, linguistically, there's a Hamitic and a Semitic group that are linked together culturally, linguistically. The Semites, you, everybody's probably aware of and familiar with, they're Arabs and Jews. Um, Assyrians are definitely Semites, so the, the Aramaic language is a Semitic language. Um, so if you, if you go back to the Babylonians, the Neo-Babylonians, uh, Hammurabi, right, invoke all of that, that, those guys were all Semites. Most of the Semitic languages are extinct. We're down to three. There are a few Aramaic speakers left on the planet. I think, I think it's like 100,000. And then there's Hebrew and Arabic. The Hamitic languages were in Africa. So probably at some point there was a common language and one group of that, those speakers ended up in Africa and the other group ended up in Asia and the separation was enough that they became two distinct categories. Hamitic languages include ancient Egyptian and Coptic, which is the, the, the evolution of ancient Egyptian to today, um, Berber, and then the Cushitic languages, which uh, Amharic, uh, uh, Somali, right? Uh, Eritrean, those those languages. Um, most many er, many people in er, Eritrea speak er, Arabic, but there's also uh, some native Hamitic languages spoken in Eritrea. The Egyptians are genetically Hamitic, which is the African half of the Hamito-Semitic cultural linguistic group. Um, in other words, that that plants Egypt firmly in Africa, culturally and linguistically and genetically, right? Um, having said that, there was obviously massive cultural exchange with Africa because, it, oh, with, sorry, with Asia, which is because it's literally right there, and also with Europe. So if you were to, if you were to do a, since we're on the topic of DNA, if you were going to do a DNA test on an, the average Egyptian, just grab an Egyptian, make them spit in a tube and send it to 23andMe, you would find that the average Egyptian was probably about 80% Egyptian. You would find that they were, there was a huge amount of Greek and Roman blood. Maybe as much as 10% Greek and Roman blood. You would find that there was a significant amount of Arab blood. And by Arab, I mean from Arabia or I mean from Palestine. And then there would be also a significant amount of Jewish blood in there, probably as much as 5% and some Syrian too in the mix. And then there's, there's a mishmash of Armenian and Circassian and Turk that would get into that mix. And then there would also be a significant amount of sub-Saharan African, especially Ethiopian, um, but, but also just everything. And if you're going anywhere else in the Mediterranean region, you'd find something similar, but in different kinds of ratios or mix-ups, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. So the, the interesting answer is, if you were to go to Greece and make some Greek spit in a tube, you're going to find that, yeah, the overwhelming majority of their DNA is Greek, but they also have crazy amounts of Turkish and Bulgarian and Italian and Egyptian and Syrian. <laughs> and, and so this idea that somehow you can just take a, take a group of people and stick them into a simplistic category 
is a problem. It's it's highly problematic. To take the, take things one more step further, when the Arabs conquered Egypt, uh, Egypt switched from speaking Coptic, a Hamitic language, to speaking Arabic, a Semitic language. So Coptic is still spoken in Egypt. It's not completely dead, but it's it's mostly dead. Um, there's a few villages left that speak it, and then the, the clergy, the Coptic clergy, speak it. So if you go to an, a Coptic Orthodox church service, you will hear Coptic. Um, so, you know, somewhere around 20% of the Egyptian population hears Coptic on a regular basis, but they don't speak it. Um, so for all intents and purposes, linguistically, Egypt is a Semitic language. So even though ethnically it's Hamitic, Linguistically, it's Semitic. <laughs> so just to just to make it impossible to truly categorize Egypt. So it, it has more European DNA than Asian DNA. It has more European DNA than Sub-Saharan Africa DNA, but it has more Northern African DNA than it has European DNA. And so the answer is, is Egypt doesn't really fit into those categories very well. Another thing, of course, is historically, Egypt was its own empire, then it got conquered by the Persians, and then it, well, it got conquered by the Assyrians, who were Semitic, and then it got conquered by the Persians, who were Aryans from Central, uh, South Central Asia, and then it got conquered by the, by the Greeks, and then it got conquered by the Romans, and so, you know, by the time you're done, <laughs> Egypt is a melting pot. It's all these different cultures cooked together. Dr. Casagranda, if I'm trying to simply be racist, how do I do this with the Egyptians? Where do I put them in my racial categories? It is so easy. Because really, when you ask the question, is Egypt African or Asian? That's really what you're asking. What color is the skin of Egyptians? Because the, the question should be, are Egyptians African, Asian, or European? The fact that the that European isn't even coming into the equation, even though there's more genetic material from Europe than there is from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, it tells me that really you've already concluded that their skin is at least brown. Is it brown or is it black is really the question you're asking. And the answer is yes, because you can find fair-skinned, very light-colored Egyptians with red hair and freckles, and you can find... Egyptians that are very black, and you might not be able to tell them apart from uh, an Ethiopian, right? Because in the so south of Egypt, there are Nubians, and the Nubians are very black. And so at the end of the day, Egypt literally has every color. <laughs> and so the real answer is that Egypt is everything. Just like you would expect for any place that was at the crossroads of, of a bunch of different civilizations. So... The reason I want to have this conversation is we, I, I think this is also a great way not only to expose when we're getting racist, but also when we oversimplify it in politics. So if you were going to create a foreign policy towards Egypt, you would, you, would, you would have to be sensitive to all its identities. Like it's a member of the League of Arab States. In fact, the League of Arab States is headquartered in Cairo, but it's also a member of the African Union. Right? It, it's, not, it's not that it's one or the other. The answer is that it is all, and it, and it accepts it that way. When, when we create a political ideology, what we do is we simplify, like, okay, I want to maximize liberty, 
or I want to maximize economic justice, or I want to maximize the ability of a rich class to completely exploit and plunder the labor of everybody else, whatever your ideology is. When we do that, we have to create all these heuristic devices inside it to simplify because the average person isn't going to want to spend a lot of time figuring this out. So here's, but there's another step and it's philosophy. When you set out and read Plato or Aristotle or, or Ibn al-Haytham or Ibn Sina or you're doing Heidegger or Derrida, when, when, you're, when you're reading this material, they're also all using heuristic devices and in the process, they're creating a new heuristic model. All, all philosophy is, all political ideology is, at the end of the day, is a model. And so if you buy into the model, you are simplifying the world into these usable parts where you can say, oh, that's X, oh, that's Y, oh, that's Z. But there's a serious danger there because what happens when you run into a situation where it doesn't quite fit? You know, right? If you're a Marxist right now and you're looking at the world through the lens of class, how do you process race? How do you process misogyny? And the answer is that most of the people that I know that I self-identify as socialists, especially if they're young white males, do an awful job when it comes to race and misogyny and tend to be locked into this, it's all class and it's only class. As if somehow there couldn't be these other two categories. And, and that's the problem with Egypt, right? It's not Africa or Asia, it's Africa, Asia, and Europe, all at the same time. So how the hell does race work internally within Egypt for an Egyptian person? Are the, so are, that's, that's a painful question. <laughs> because at, at the end of the day, the, the desire to be white and whiteness ha has really permeated um, Egyptian culture uh, to the point where Fair and Lovely, the product out of India, is advertised on Egyptian TV and sold oh, really? widely in Egypt. Oh, oh yes, it is. In fact, they, they just run the, the Indian commercials, but they, they, they yeah. dub it over in Arabic. <laughs> and so their, their lips don't match what oh they're saying. God. God. Yeah, the last time I saw a Fair and Lovely commercial in Egypt, I wanted to break the TV screen. Um, it's this... It's this modeling agency, and there's these two judges, a man and a woman, sitting next to each other. And this drop-dead, gorgeous Indian woman walks up, and she's, you know, like she's posing. And uh, the two judges look at each other, and they shake their heads, and they, they squint at each other because clearly she isn't acceptable. And the Indian woman, the model, does her finger like no. And when she does the no on her finger, she wipes they're, apparently they had a glass plate in front of them. They were probably worried about COVID. Um, she, she wipes the glass cl plate clean, the window clean with her hand. And, and she, she lowers her skin color by 20 shades. And then they're like so excited and they, <laughs> and they're so, and they pick her and she's their model. And the answer is that's, that's what, what Egypt has become at some really painful level that whiter is better. Um, it's worth pointing out that Mohammed Najib, Egypt's first ever president, was half half Sudanese, half Egyptian, and so by U.S. race-based categories, he would have been considered black. Like he was, he was dark, 
Um, and Anwar Sadat, Egypt's third president, was also half Sudanese, half Egyptian, and very, very dark man. I think the average American looking at him would see a black man. And so that, I, I'm, of course, speaking with limited access to the culture of the 1950s and the culture of the 1970s. But, but my understanding is that just didn't really matter. That wasn't in the 50s and the 70s such a problem. I think today it would be a bigger problem. I think uh, this, this sort of whiteness, aspiring to be white culture has really taken off in the last, the last few decades. Um, I, a few years ago, I was in Luxor and there was a red head with uh, very light colored skin and freckles sweeping. He was, he was sweeping the street. He's a street sweeper. And I stopped because some people were talking to him and I wanted to hear what they were saying to him. And the people that were talking to him were Egyptians. And he said, yeah, everybody just assumes I'm a foreigner and I'm down on my luck and I'm trying to work my way out of poverty or something. But nope, I'm an Egyptian. I'm, <laughs> I'm an Egyptian street sweeper. There's nothing foreign about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's so strange that as the world globalizes and as we have sort of one like media culture and all of this, we import necessarily this American conception of Egypt into Egypt to the extent that Egyptians themselves have a distorted view of themselves. Absolutely. And fair and lovely can travel so well across borders that it's uh, frightening to me. <laughs> it, it, it really is. And it, it's such a... It's such an acknowledgement of self-hate at, at a really core level. Um, so the way race was dealt with, I shouldn't say race because it wasn't a race issue, but skin color, the way skin color was dealt with in ancient Egypt uh, fell along class lines. It was totally a labor issue. Oh, uh -huh. and, and so women were considered desirable when they were fair. And so if you look at ancient Egyptian art, women are always portrayed as having light colored skin. And I, the reason I'm saying this is a class issue is because upper, what we would consider to be upper class or upper middle class Egyptians back then, the, the women were in the house, working in the household, and as a result didn't step outside and so weren't quite tanned, whereas men were considered desirable when they were dark Interesting. because they were outside and they were working. So you'll see two people seated, ne seated next to each other. Two, they'll have two statues, like a married couple, and she's really pale and he's really dark. And so the ancient Egyptians sort of already understood that they, they were this multicolored society and they already had standards for it, but it, was, it wasn't based on, you know, you're inferior. It's, it was based on your status. And your status was derived, if you were a man, by how much you worked outside, and your status was derived by a woman based on how much you worked inside. So it's really strange to see the evolution today where, you know, the American University in Cairo sort of promotes this, you can Americanize mentality. And, you know, the youth all want to speak in English, and they all want to lock into American ways of dress and culture. And, and there's, there's been this really m weird Americanization at the same time as the aspiring to be white. 
a lot of the the Christian population thinks that all they have to do is give their their children European sounding names, and since they're Christian, that they will they will instantly be integrated into uh, and I'm I'm doing air quotes here Western culture. But it's worth remembering that when you get that Western civilization textbook, the first two weeks are Iraq and Egypt. That Western civilization is actually from Iraq and Egypt. That Iraq and Egypt weren't Western and then they lost their Westernness. They're just as Western as they've always been because they're the birthplace of whatever this notion of Westernness is. What, what, what is really meant by Western civilization is Mediterranean civilization. Because when you think about it, the Mediterranean isn't a boundary at all. It's a giant freeway that automatically makes the connection between Egypt and Italy uh, like chains. Like there's no breaking that boundary. Um, And so the cultures that formed around the Mediterranean were then sort of locked in this really intimate trade relationship, this really intimate cultural exchange relationship, um, as opposed to being separated by it. I I think people get confused about what bodies of water do. Bodies of water mean transportation is easy. Uh Uh-huh, and connection rather than separation, absolutely. Exactly. Um, And so the the amazing thing is, is that the Sahara is a much bigger boundary culturally (laughs) and genetically than the Mediterranean because the Mediterranean served the opposite purpose. It became the trade routes. Anyway... So, so the answer is yes. Egypt is African, Asian, etc. <laughs> yeah, and, and European. I mean, you go to Alexandria and it's 19th century European architecture everywhere. You know, like there's, there's no getting away from this notion that, that Egypt is completely connected to the north side of the, the Mediterranean. And, the, and in the periods that Egypt had empire, it always looked to the other side of the Mediterranean. So frequently that was Turkey. Um, but then, you know, I, Turkey keeps applying to the European Union. <laughs> It'll never get it. But it can dream. Morocco has now applied to the European Union. Really? I had no idea. Oh. Yeah, so Morocco got into trouble because it annexed Western Sahara and the African Union threw it out. And uh, Morocco went fine. Maybe our future is Europe. They applied. They were soundly told no. I mean, it was it was clear that this was not considered a good fit. And uh, the African Union, I, I was it 2018? I think it was 2018, decided to let Morocco back in. I think they got nervous. <laughs> so uh, it has been decided that the world court I think is going to decide what happens to to Western Sahara and the African Union has decided to stay out of the affair. Oh wow. So that's that's that was the agreement that Morocco made was you know, let's let somebody else ar- be the arbiter but you guys stay out of it and then we'll come back in. 